turn to Exodus chapter 34. We are wrapping up a teaching series that we have been in for the last six weeks uh, in the two, some of the two most profound and two of the most quoted uh, verses in the Bible by the Bible, Exodus 34 chapters 6 and 7. So let's start by reading it today, and I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read the text out loud together, and then we're going to unpack it. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7, read it with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Go ahead and be seated. Well done, guys. You guys are getting good at the whole public reading thing. But we're wrapping up this series that we've been in, and and what these two verses are together is God's self-disclosure of himself. Right? This is, if you remember the scene, this is God with Moses up on the mountain, and he's saying, tell the people of God, tell the people of me, tell the Israelites what I am like. And so God proceeds to not only unveil his name, but he is telling Moses, and through Moses the Israelites, what he himself is like. And the first thing that we learned about God is that he has a name, right? And his name is not God, right? God, at the, at the very best, that, that word in Hebrew, Elohim, is the word for God, is a title or a category, like mother, like father, like pastor, like barista, whatever. It's on that same level, like it is the same category. It's just a category for a type of invisible but real spiritual being. And so we have to understand why God needs a name in the first place. And what we discovered is God needs a name because there are many Elohim. There are many lowercase g gods that are at work, all vying for power and authority in this universe. And he distinctifies himself by providing his name, which is Yahweh. Then, right after, right out of the gate, after he proclaims his name to Moses, he goes on to help Moses understand what he is like, what kind of Elohim he is like. And it starts by, he's compassionate and gracious, right? This kind of umbrella pairing of words that we should read everything that comes after falls under this umbrella is God, this Elohim, this God, Yahweh, is compassionate and he is gracious, which means his default posture towards you is mercy. His default posture towards you, the image that we unpack together, is like a loving parent to a child, like ready to help, ready to step in with just these these welling up, overwhelming feelings of joy and adoration and mercy and compassion. But he's not only compassionate and gracious, he is slow to anger, revealing his long patience with us. But also, I think it was DJ who gave us this great picture that in a race, right, between our repentance and God's anger, our repentance always wins, that he is slow to anger, making space for us to repent. But he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this idea is God has a covenant loyalty towards his people, that there is something more than a casual relationship between God and his people, but he is committing to a people to come through for them, to bless them, to be in relationship and partnership with them. 
And last week, we got to the really weird part of that, that, those two verses. Verse 7, right, where it starts to, to look interesting. Okay, God's forgiving. He's forgiving all sorts of sins. And then we unpack His justice. And then we're trying to figure out what it means that He is visiting iniquity on, on the children and the children's children and all that. It was, I think, uh, one of those most profound and beautiful pictures of who God is. It is complex. It is nuanced. It is layered. And uh, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go grab the podcast from that because it really tied together for us a picture of a relational God who wants to be with his people as he is rooting out sin and evil in this world and bringing about his kingdom. That's where we've been so far. That is what the the last six weeks have been journeying through these two verses. And today where we are at is this profound call to be like the God that we have been studying for the last six weeks. To not let this moment go by is just adding to our knowledge of who God is, but to actually understand who He is and put that into practice into our own life. All right, so what we're actually going to do is if you have Exodus 34 open, stay there. We're going to continue on in the story because after God tells Moses his name and he goes down the list, I'm Yahweh, I'm compassionate, gracious, slow to anger on all of that, we actually get a bit more to the story. And so go uh, continuing on in verse 8. Moses, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, right? Immediately, Moses acted, and his first response was worship, because the only fitting and rational response to that kind of God that we have been learning about for the last six weeks is worship. And by worship, we don't mean like the songs we sing on a Sunday. That's this part of it. But by worship, we actually mean an entire life oriented around the wonder and awe of the nature of God, right? An entire life that is shaped by this God that we worship, not just the songs we sing, but our entire lives that we lived, And this text, where we've been the last couple of weeks, is central, was central to the life of the Jewish people, right? Maybe for us in the church today in 2018, what what John 3.16 is to us, like knowing it inside and out, backwards and forwards, like even our little kiddos can recite that verse word for word. What that verse is for maybe us today is what this passage was for the Hebrew people thousands of years ago, right? And they'd actually referred to this text as the 13 midots, or the 13 characteristics or attributes of God. And so not only his name, but his attributes, they would, they would dwell on, they would ruminate on, they would ponder, they would meditate on, they would memorize, right? Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, and so on down the list. But here's what is interesting. Only the first 12 are found in these verses that we've been studying the last couple of weeks. The 13th one is actually a little bit farther down in the story. So after Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped, Moses said in verse 9, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. And behold, I am making a covenant before all your people." And I will do marvels such as these have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. So God is saying here, Moses is begging Yahweh to go with his people, to not depart from his presence. He wants him to stay in relationship with Israel, even though Israel has blown it so many times. And what we've learned so far is that God needs very little coaxing to stay in relationship with his people. 
And so he says, yes, I will make a covenant. You, Israel, are unique. You are unlike any other nation. And so not only will I go with you, Israel, but he's going to use them in a special way. All of the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, or Yahweh. Every time we see the Lord in all caps, it is Yahweh, his name. All the other nations will see the work he is doing in them, and he's going to use them in a special way. As a nation, they will be walking signposts for who Yahweh is, what he's like, and even eventually come to worship him. Go to verse 11. This is what Yahweh says. He says, here's your part, right? My part is you're going to be my people, and everyone on earth is going to know what I'm like by how you live. Here is your part. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and all the Jebusites. Those are all like the ethnic groups in the land of Canaan. Take care, Yahweh says, lest you make a covenant. Does that word have a little bit more weight to it after the last few weeks? Lest you make a bounding, loyal, loving relationship with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Right? He's saying, don't go worshiping other gods. Don't even let their their symbols or their temples or all the things they've erected to worship God stand. Take all of that down and don't worship other gods, the gods of the nations around you. Then, in verse 14, what Yahweh does is remind them of the very first commandment he gave them back in Exodus chapter 20. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." Don't worship other gods. Why? Why do you think? Because he's jealous, all right? Don't worship other gods, for Yahweh is jealous. Now, we have to stop here because immediately we read in all of our own baggage and definition to that word jealous, and we're like, wait a second, isn't that a little bit insecure of God to be jealous? Right? Isn't it a little bit selfish of him to be jealous? Because we think jealousy is like the, the nervous, paranoid boyfriend who reads his girlfriend texts and always wants to know where she is. Right? That's what we think of when we think of jealousy. But the picture of jealousy here is actually far from that. Jealousy is this picture of a loving, faithful, passionate husband fighting to keep all of the other lovers out of the bedroom. Right, trying to preserve something that is beautiful. Or maybe a mother fighting to keep her son away from the local drug dealer. Like that's, that's the kind of picture of, of jealousy that is present here in this text. And this is Yahweh's name, all of this. This is who he is. Yahweh is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and is jealous. But here's where this verse takes kind of another interesting turn. This verse can be translated a little bit differently than what you and I have maybe in our English translations. One of the ways we can translate it is, is whose name is jealous or who is jealous for his name. Remember, a name is not just like something you put on, on one of these guys here. It's not something you put on a dinner reservation. A name represented so much more in this time, in this place. It represented who you are, some of your past, some of your future. It represented your personhood, your identity, your nature, your character. 
So Yahweh, if we are reading reputation and identity into this word name, Yahweh is jealous for his reputation. He is fighting to protect who he is, what his nature is like, what his character is like. Like a like a jealous husband fighting to keep all the other lovers out of the bedroom. Like a mom defending and fighting to keep her kid away from the drug dealer. Yahweh is defending his character and his nature. Keep that in your minds because we're going to take one more thought and mash that together here. So hold on to that thought and we're going to look at one more thought that is present here in the Old Testament. And we're going to bring these two things together. Deuteronomy 28 is this profound chapter in in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And in this section, at the very end, what is happening is Yahweh is starting to unpack all of these blessings for keeping the covenant and all of these curses for violating this covenant. So it's this whole big deal about who God is and what He's supposed to be with His people and to the other nations that are in this covenant, loyalty, loving relationship here. And Yahweh says, if we are in this relationship here together, that means you're going to live in a certain way and I'm going to do certain things for you. And so there's all these blessings that God unpacks and what it, what it means to be His people and then all these curses for violating that covenant. But right after a whole list of blessings, what it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 10, is all of the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they shall be afraid of you. They will see that you are called by my name by how you keep this covenant. Context before is blessings for keeping the covenant, curses for violating the covenant, and right in the middle of that, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are my people, called by my name, by how you live. Old Testament scholar, kind of heavyweight in this area, Chris Wright, says the expression called by the name of denotes ownership and intimate relationship. In ordinary use, it expresses the longing of anxious women to belong to a husband or the close authenticating relationship of a prophet to his God. Right? So the idea here is an intimate family-like relationship with the Creator, like a spouse, like a child, kind of the, the intimacy being known by each other in that relationship. And as God's people, we are called by His name, which means we are in this intimate relationship with the Creator God. And that name comes with a reputation that is given and a reputation that is crafted. Meaning, when you are called by the name of Yahweh, that comes with a whole lot of stuff. When you say the name Jesus, people think a whole lot of things. That is a reputation given. But it also means that as a member of this family, you have a role to play in propagating his reputation to the earth. Right? This is not something you are just handed, but you have an active role in shaping God's reputation here on earth. Sherry's uh, maiden name is Marsden, and actually it was up until very, very recently. Uh, but on, on our wedding day, you know, she is going to take my name, or five years later, whichever one. But she took my name. She took my last name, the Alcorn name. She has it. And, and with the Alcorn name comes all sorts of stuff, good and bad baggage. It comes with a reputation, a character, a nature. People that know an Alcorn will immediately read that in to Sherry. 
right? And just, and same thing with my, with our, you know, my two sons and my daughter. They take on my last name, and with that last name comes all sorts of things all mashed together. Some good, some bad, some neutral, whatever, but not only are they given that reputation by carrying my name, but they have an opportunity to craft that reputation. And so, Sherry, as you know, someone who has taken my name has an opportunity to enjoy, hopefully, the good reputation of my name, but she also has an opportunity to help shape what that name means. And so if I'm a little rough around the edges and impatient with people, which is not at all like me if you know me, uh, but if I'm rough around, let's say, you know, in this other dream world, I'm rough around the edges and impatient and kind of like get angry really easily and, and have like a lack of patience for incompetency and all these things. If that thing is true of me and that's kind of some of my reputation that's gone out there, Sherry not only inherits some of that, but she has the opportunity to shape and change that. And so when people think of the Alcorns, they don't just think of like me who's constantly frustrated and impatient with people, they think of Sherry, who's amazing at everything and really patient with people and merciful and, and compassionate and loving and all of these different things. In the same way that you, the people of God, are called by God's name, you get his reputation with you. You carry that into the world, but you also have a really vital responsibility to help shape that name, to help shape the reputation, to help shape what people of the earth, to use Deuteronomy language, know of God. As sons and daughters of the Creator God, you are bound to God and called by His name. And Yahweh is jealous for that name, that reputation, that character, that nature. And He is fighting to preserve this reputation and this name that He has called His people by. So if we bring these two ideas together, that Yahweh is jealous for his reputation and he has also entrusted it to all of you people, then we have a few different ways to move forward here, right? That brings us to a bit of a crossroads. If we are called by his name, then when we go out, we have a choice to either carry his name well or I'm going to steal some language from a prophet in the Old Testament to profane his name. We'll start with the first one. Carrying the name was at the heart of the Israelite people of the Old Testament. It was at the heart of their identity and role. Flip over to Exodus chapter 19. If you have your Bible still with you, just a few pages to the left. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. So this is pre the first Ten Commandments, okay? So Israel is at this mountaintop right here, at the base of this mountain. And starting in verse 3, Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, quote, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. What does that mean, the, the Egyptians? What is he referring to here? What's that? Yeah, destroying the Egyptians just randomly or for a certain purpose? or what, What's the story he's bringing to mind? Yeah, God's people enslaved for like 400 years. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He brings them out by raining plagues down on the Israelite people, by rescuing his people, destroying the, Israelite, or the Egyptians, all of those things together, right? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Reed saved you and brought you to me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Read, highly valued among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
and you shall be to me two things. What are those two things? You shall be to me what? Kingdom of priests, and what's the second thing? And a holy nation. Well done. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, if we're in this together, if you keep my covenant, you will be my highly valued, treasured people, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I think we get tripped up on the word priest sometimes. A priest is someone who represents God to the world and the world back to God, this mediator for a reputation. But a point of clarity here, because of many thousands of years of church history, it's worth noting that a pastor and a priest are not the same thing, okay? So we're not talking about a kingdom of births here. That's not what we're after. A kingdom of priests. God is saying to the entire nation, this is who you will be, not just the super spiritual, not just the wealthy, not just the Levites, the entire nation, you are a kingdom of priests. So in Scripture, a priest is someone who represents God to this world. A pastor, however, is someone who equips the saints for the work of ministry. So Ephesians 4, that's the role of a pastor. 1 Peter 2 is what a priest is. And Peter picks up on the same language in the New Testament and says, all of you who are in Christ are a kingdom of priests. So priest, pastor, not the same thing. So as people of God, you are a priest. You are a priest. You are a priest. You take the reputation of God to this world. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How do we be a kingdom of priests? By being a holy nation. Now, real quick, holy in the Old Testament did not necessarily have moral implications along with it in its, in its root form. What holy means is set apart for, dedicated to, reserved for something unique. It wasn't necessarily a good and a bad thing, although those things get implanted later, but at its very root, holy simply means set apart or dedicated to something, right? Okay, so a holy nation, set apart for, dedicated to, and the prime passage in Scripture for holiness is not actually in the New Testament. It's found in a book we always skip over really fast in our Bible readings plan, but it's in Leviticus, just a few pages to the right. Turn with me. We're going to be all over the place, guys, so if you have your Bible, get your, you know, start licking your thumbs. All right, Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying this, look at verse 2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, what? You shall be holy. Why? Because I am the Lord, your God, I am holy, right? God's people are to be holy because it's a better way to live? Sure. Because it's how we were intended to live? Yeah. Because it demonstrates God well to the world? Yes, absolutely. But more than that, we are to be holy, set aside, dedicated to, because the Lord is holy, And if we read through the next, I don't know, 15 some odd verses, we see this common refrain where the Lord starts to define what holiness means for his people. He starts to unpack what holy living actually looks like. And he goes down and just through this list, do not make idols for yourselves or make any gods cast of the metal. And we have this refrain, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, for I am the Lord. 
right? This is this refrain we see throughout the Old Testament. You are to live a certain way because God is a certain way. As if to say, your quality of life must reflect my character. As if Yahweh is saying, this is what I require of you, my people, because this is what reflects me to the world. As a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, I want you to live in a way that reflects who I am, my character, my nature. And this isn't just Leviticus, though. This is all throughout the Bible. And in fact, Jesus picks up on this in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous teachings of all time. And in Matthew chapter 5, right in the middle of one of his most provocative teachings around enemy love, and sexual purity, and anger, and generosity, and divorce, and anxiety, and fasting, and forgiveness, he says this in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Have you ever read that verse and thought, oh, Jesus must be doing his hyperbole thing? Or like, that's not even possible, so, so what does it actually mean? What if it actually meant what it says? Now, Perfect may not mean what it means to us nowadays. It's not this perfect checking off of the list of every detail and having your desk like neatly organized at all these right angles. And you know, that's not what perfect meant. Perfect would mean whole, complete, mature. Like it would mean maturity and, and wholeness. Jesus is, is rephrasing Leviticus chapter 19. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be holy because I am holy. This right here is a theology of imitation. That because God is a certain way, you and I ought to act a certain way. Not to check off a list of rules, not so that we can be morally superior, but so we can reflect who God is to all the peoples of the earth. What Yahweh wants is a living, breathing people to put his name on display, to show the world what he is like, not just by what we say, but how we live. That's what Yahweh is after, a people who are godly, who are like the God they worship, a people who are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness who fight for justice and show love and mercy to all. What could that be like if that is how we filtered our everyday decisions? Does this reflect the compassion and grace and mercy and patience and justice of God and how I spend my money or my time or how I'm spending my time with people or how I raise my kids or how I interact with a boss who hates me or I hate like, how would, how would that change how we live every day? Because the reality is, you, as people of God, are called to carry His name. To carry His name. When you go to work with autistic kids, you are not just there as a, as a therapist. You are carrying the name. You're not just a graphic designer. You are carrying the name. You're not just a teacher. You are carrying the name. You're not just being a stay-at-home mom, like, you know, hoping to get out of the house soon, but you are carrying the name with your kids. Like, when you go home and, and you visit family for Christmas, you are not just, like, there to endure another Christmas holiday. You are carrying the name. When you spend time with your friends, you're not just grabbing a beer at Topa Topa. You are carrying the name. 
each and every one of you have this responsibility and mantle to put who God is on display with how we speak and with how we live. Paul's language in the New Testament as he's writing to another church is is ambassadors. You are representing who God is. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors, exactly what we think of it as, authorized representatives, like ambassadors of the U.S. are in countries all over the world, and they are authorized to speak on behalf of the United States. Same idea here. We are authorized as those who are in Christ to speak on behalf of God, to live on behalf of God. But what's, what caught my attention this time around as I was reading through this verse is not that first part, which is profound, but the second part, God making his appeal through us. That word appeal means he's like making a case. God is making a case for who he is through you. You are God's case study for himself to the world. As you carry his name, as you are authorized representatives of Yahweh, ambassadors, witnesses, Luke writes, God is making his appeal to those in your life who do not yet know him through you. With your whole life, you are carrying the name. How you live will tell people what Jesus is like. Which brings us to the danger spot is if we can carry the name, we also have the opportunity to profane the name. If we remember back to the Ten Commandments, we dug into this a few weeks ago, and we covered how the first two are really critical to understanding who God is. God says you shall not worship other gods, right? All these invisible but real spiritual creatures that inhabit the universe, don't worship them. And don't worship all the other idols, right? And even there, he says, I'm a jealous God. But look at the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, if you're anything like me, that verse means don't curse, right? Like, don't, don't cuss and then take the, the Lord's name in vain. You can... All the other cuss words are fine, but don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's what we think, right? That's what we read into that. And I guess so, but that's not really the point of what is happening here in Exodus chapter 20. The more literal translation to what's going on here is to, quote, carry Yahweh's name for no good, or to raise up Yahweh's name for nothingness or emptiness or falsehood or vanity, Like, if we actually go back and dig through, it's not just like taking the Lord's name in vain as in a curse word. It is carrying Yahweh's name for no good. It is misrepresenting who Yahweh is in your speech and in your life. This is about Yahweh's reputation. And I think what is actually more dangerous than like a curse word is misrepresenting who God is to people is claiming God is behind something when he's not. And he's saying, be careful not to misuse my name. Read reputation, character, nature. Not to raise up all of that for no good. It's doing something or saying something that doesn't represent who God is 
as people who carry his name. Right, so one of the most dangerous things that we can say is, God told me to do this. Because there's such a moment to justify any awful sinful behavior by saying, oh, God told me to do that. And that's like your trump card on the table. Like, God told me to, you know, leave my wife because I found someone more attractive. No, God did not tell you to do that, right? God told me to blow all my money on lotto tickets and I might win it rich. No, God did not tell you to do it. One of the most dangerous things we can do is claim God is behind something when he is not, to misrepresent who he is. Let me tell you the truth. That is exactly what happened to God's people. Look through the story of the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 21 all the way to when Jesus comes. This is what the people of God were doing. Go over to Ezekiel, a weird prophet. We also skip often in our Bible reading plan. There's good stuff in here, guys. It's so good. Okay, Ezekiel, kind of a crazy guy, but it's okay. We're going to roll with him. And what is happening here in Ezekiel is... Ezekiel is, is writing to the people of Israel. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They're in exile. They're not in their land. They're not doing the things they ought to be doing. And, and the Lord, through Ezekiel, is telling them why. He's telling them why they're not enjoying their promised land, why they're in exile. So pick it up in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Right? Prophets get to use that language, all right? Prophets get to use that language. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, this is what Yahweh is saying, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Moving on, ex, uh, verse 18, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Injustice, idolatry, the two main sins of the people of God. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, look at this, they profaned my holy name. In that, in that all the other people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. These are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which means what? Yeah, jealousy. What is his name? It's not just a thing you put on a name tag. What is it? Who he is. Character, reputation, nature, absolutely. Which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. This is key, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God is jealous for his name. Right? He says, this is why you are in exile, because you are dragging my reputation through the mud by living in a way that does not reflect who I am. God's agenda is for all the nations to know what he is like. And Israel is failing utterly at this mission. That's easy to point our finger at Israel. Are we any different? How might people think about God if they only had your life to look at? I 
there's a research firm here. Actually, they're based in Ventura, and they do a lot of um, uh, research and surveys kind of in this uh, intersection of faith and culture. And a few years ago, they, they found the top four perceptions people who don't go to church have of Christians. And these were the results, the top four. The first one, 91% were anti-gay. It's not my language, the language of the survey. Uh, not just mean like have a different sexual ethic or different view of marriage based on what is in the Bible, but like actively hostile to the persons in that LGBTQ community. 97, 91% anti-gay. Uh, 87% were judgmental. 81%, do I have that right? 85% hypocritical. 70% insensitive to others. The top four perceptions of people who do not go to church have of Christians. Right? And according to that study, these four are followed by these other negative perceptions. Old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, boring, not accepting of others' faith, and confusing. When they think of the Christian faith, these are the images that come to mind. These things sound like Jesus to you. Are these things that are making Jesus look good to a world that needs to know him. Now, that's a bit more on a broad scale. This is a national survey, and so I actually don't see these things in our church. Maybe I have my rose-colored glasses on, but I actually don't see these things in you guys, in our community here in downtown Ventura. I actually see quite the opposite. And so what I was thinking and praying about is like, okay, if these are maybe nationally how people view, you know, view Christians generically, how might we specifically as Anthem Ventura be profaning the name, to steal that language? How are we mis misrepresenting Yahweh to our city? And, and what, do, what does that communicate to our city about who Jesus is? And may I share a bit of a critique for us as a community? Maybe we are misrepresenting Yahweh to our city with our inconsistency, flakiness, and lack of commitment. Is Jesus inconsistent, flaky, or noncommittal? No. Maybe we're misrepresenting Yahweh with our busyness and wearing it as a badge of honor. When I read through the Gospels, Jesus was not busy. He lived an unhurried life that welcomed interruption. Are we misrepresenting Yahweh by our lack of biblical depth and literacy? God has revealed himself to us. When was the last time we engaged with him in Scripture? Jesus memorized, cared deeply for, highly valued Scripture. Maybe we are misrepresenting Yahweh in our shallow relationships, not wanting to dig too deep with anyone lest we be actually known and have to change. Maybe we are misrepresenting Yahweh with our self-centeredness, with our time, with our money, with how you've been wired. Maybe we are misrepresenting Yahweh in that our lives look no different from those outside the church family. And maybe the most important thing, maybe we are misrepresenting Yahweh with our unrepentant sin. You see, carrying the name isn't just about the positive things, the compassion, grace, slow to anger, justice, mercy, all of these things. It's also about how we deal with our sinfulness, how we deal with our brokenness. One of the most powerful ways 
to carry the name of Jesus into our city is to confess and repent of those things that don't look like Jesus in our life. To actually take a step back, be a little bit introspective, and to see where we are misrepresenting Yahweh and own up to it, confess it, and repent, actually change the way we live. In another study, uh, Barna, that same firm, found that today, or when they did this study, 3% of the population had positive um, perceptions of the quote-unquote evangelical Christian, 3%. Think you and I are okay. You know what's astounding? Is they did that same uh, survey in 1996, and they found that 85% of people had a positive perception of quote-unquote evangelical Christians. 85% to 3% in one generation. That's astounding. That is absolutely astounding. And we could chalk it up to a whole number of, of cultural things that are going on. We could chalk it up to a whole lot of people who aren't us, absolutely. But I think there's a bit of ownership we can take in this moment. And I think there's actually good news and bad news in that, right? I'm a bad news first kind of guy, so I'll start there. But, the bad news is that for a variety of reasons, the name of Jesus is being dragged through the mud. Right? We are known for things that actually run counter to the way of Jesus. And this is bad news. The good news is, is if we can wreck that reputation in one generation, maybe we can write it in one generation. Like maybe you and I, as those who carry the name and have a reputation given, can leverage our authority to craft a different reputation and how we live and how we speak and how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we treat those inside the church and how we treat those outside the church, maybe we can be a part of that change. What if being, instead of being known for being judgmental or hypocritical or insensitive to others or whatever, we are known for serving the poor in our city or for being a resource for those who need help, who are transitioning from homelessness to stability? to being involved in the foster care system or the adoption system here? What if we were known for justice as a church, fighting for those who can't fight for themselves? What if we're known for generosity as a church, choosing to live below our means so like we can bless others? What if we were known for humility, like recognizing the areas in our life that we have missed it and owning up to it and changing it? What if we are known by the Holy Spirit's work in our life, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? What if we were known by those things? What if we were known as a people who are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, fighting for justice and showing mercy to all? Now, here's the problem. I'm part of the problem, and you're part of the problem. Like, like, if I were to ask you, when you, when you leave here, are, are you in your, any given week carrying the name or profaning the name? Chances are the answer is yes to, to both, right? Sometimes we do it right and sometimes we get it horribly wrong. Sometimes I carry the name and, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I profane it with how I live, with how I talk, with how I treat Sherry, with how I treat our kids, with how I treat you guys or those who are around, how we make decisions about our family, about our budget, about where our time is spent. Sometimes we carry the name and sometimes we don't. To carry his name is to live a life oriented around being with Jesus, being like him and doing what he did, representing, imitating him 
to this world. And sometimes we represent God well, and sometimes we don't. And this is why we need Jesus. Jesus did this perfectly. You and I don't do it perfectly. That's why we need him to do this better. Flip over to John chapter 14. This is where I want to land us today. In this invitation to ask for help. John 14, starting in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father." There's all sorts of disagreement on what verse 12 means, but universally, every scholar does not think greater works mean lesser works. There's something here. Truly, truly, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. How? Because Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus actually trusts you to carry his name. He... He is going to the Father and actually trusts that you can and will represent him on this earth to live as a priest, a representative, an ambassador, a witness, whatever you would like to swap in there for you. He is trusting you to carry the name. He says in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus believes in you because he believes in the Holy Spirit in you. As you pray for these things, right, asking for anything in my name is not just like asking for Ferrari and saying in Jesus' name, amen. That's not what's going on here. But as we pray and lean into who Jesus is, and as our hearts and our minds and our lives are more aligned to him today than they were yesterday and more tomorrow than today, as we are being more conformed into his image, when we pray for these things, when we're asking Jesus to help us carry the name well, we have in Scripture a promise he will help us do that. We did this whole series so we could know God better, to know God on his terms, the way he's revealed himself to us. And what we have discovered is that God wants to be known by us. He does not want to be as much of a mystery as we like to think. He wants to be known by us, and he wants to be with us. And part of being with him is carrying his name. He says, being in a relationship with me, this covenant relationship, this abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness, this eternal covenant loyalty partnership with God means reflecting him to this world. It means carrying his name. To know God is to carry his name. He trusts you with his name. And our driving motivation for reflecting him is knowing him. Once we have been there's a, we were at the queue the other night, and, and Kyle brought up this picture of when, when Moses comes down the mountain, he's radiating the glory of God. He can't help but imitate and reflect the glory of God. If we have really, truly been with God, 
that imitation oozes out of us. And if we feel like it doesn't, if we feel like we're failing like Israel, we can go to Jesus for help. So he's at the right hand of the Father. And whatever you ask in his name, he will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And that we would carry his name well to our family, to our friends, our neighborhood, our city, to the nations. That we would carry his name well.